Like to shout break, everyone more or less panics. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where well, you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Hello, good morning and welcome. This is Money for Nothing on Tuesday 30th of December and I'm Richard Harris. It's back to work today with a full day of market news, and here are the business headlines. Greek politics turned nasty, but seem to be no longer a threat to the Eurozone. Stock markets recover in Asia, nod up in Europe, and are unmoved in the US. And we have a fireside chat between two former central bankers who saved the world, as Mervyn King interviews Ben Bernanke. Our market's guest today is Michael Avery of Rubberbank, fresh from writing up his thoughts about 2015. William Ma of Gotics Penjing joins us later to talk about how he's going to look at the world in 2015 as a fund of funds investment manager. And to answer questions that I don't ask or forget to is our regular guest host for Tuesday, Andrew Sullivan. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Richard. Andrew, on Money for Nothing yesterday, we had a day of unbridled optimism tinged with just a little caution. What mood are you in? Well, I think, uh, I mean, I think as we look forward to the next year, I think there are a lot of, uh, you know, headwinds still out there that have to be faced. Uh, but that doesn't mean there aren't going to be good opportunities for investors, but it's still going to be a matter of, you know, research and watching stocks closely. You know, when I hear that, I always think, well, what everybody's saying is the market's going up. Yes, there'll be pullbacks, but it's going up. Uh, am I right? Well, I think, I mean, the encouraging factors are probably that, you know, low oil costs is, is encouraging for, uh, as a factor of production. But at the end of the day, we've still got this big problem with, on the demand side with consumers still reluctant to go out and spend. Uh, Japan still on the precipice of going one way or the other. Uh, slow growth in Europe and or even, you know, in areas near recession and then slow growth in the US. But nothing is the, you know, the dynamics that we've seen in the past. So I think... Uh, Against that background and with still running with very low interest rates, which are keeping a lot of companies going that might otherwise fail, uh, it's not really a, you know, a, a wholly bullish scenario. Yeah, so it's always the unknown unknowns that come and uh, uh, bite you, when, uh, you just when you think things are going OK. Well, who would have thought that Greek politics might be of interest to us in Hong Kong? But global markets are now so interconnected that they do just that. Two years ago, the refusal by the Greek parliament to reject a candidate for president would have led to the breakup of the eurozone and volatility around the world. But now economies are strong enough to shrug it off. European stock markets dipped and then recovered, with the main markets up about half a percent. The FTSE was up, Germany was flat. The pigs country, which is the amusing market shorthand for Portugal, Italy, Spain and Greece, were down around half to three quarters of a percent. But Greece itself ended down nearly four percent. The euro is holding steady at just below 122, uh, as is the yen. Uh, the pound dipped a touch, though, and a few moments ago it's trading at uh, $1.55 or 12 Hong Kong dollars and three cents to the pound. Yesterday, the action uh, was actually in Hong Kong with the eight share market. Um, Shanghai only crept up a third of a percent yesterday to 3,319, but it still made a five year high. Uh, we're beginning to catch up to the eight share market, uh, which is known here as the HSCEI index, which is of Chinese stocks listed in Hong Kong, jumped nearly 4% to 12,019. Eight shares such as insurer China Life surged nearly 9% to $30.50 its highest in f three years. 
China Life and Ping An hold between 8 to 10% of their assets in Chinese equities, so people are buying the stocks for those assets. But despite that rally, China Life shares in Hong Kong, uh, sorry, in Shanghai are still 38% more, percent more expensive than they are in Hong Kong. The renminbi slipped a cent to close at 6.22 to the US dollar yesterday. Sydney had a bit of a jump, uh, up 1.5% to 5,473, helped by positive news from the US. And rather quietly, Brent oil lost a buck and a half overnight. It's currently trading at $57.96 a barrel. And gold's been in a declining trend. It's been in a declining trend for five months now, and it's lost $12 to 1,183. Some of the other headlines, uh, China's blocked access to Google's Gmail traffic. Uh, again, it's been happening on a temporary basis over the last six months, uh, but yesterday seemed to be uh, rather a bigger outage. Copper's dropped to a four-year low on slowing China growth, and total co- corporate profits in China fell by 4.2% annually up to last month, being the most in two years as the economy slowed. Now, it's been 30 years since two postdoctoral economics students shared a room at MIT, and they recently met for a fireside chat to talk about the period where they both made their names, the global financial crisis. Former governor of the Bank of England, Lord Mervyn King, met former chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, Ben Bernanke, and reminisced about their time at the helm during the GFC. During the crisis, both were at the heart of managing interest rates, money supply and exchange rates. Uh, As an example, the current governor of the Federal Reserve Board, Janet Yellen, is said to be the sixth most powerful person in the world. So these guys were really right to the heart of the banking crisis. As we've seen in the news, the ramifications of the crisis still continue even today. But it's quite a lot of learned to how they handled the crisis. Uh, so I'm going to play a little bit for you now. Lord King asked Ben Bernanke through the BBC what his typical day was through the crisis. Typically, we'd get in early in the morning and there would be conference calls. There was in my office a red phone uh, sitting on a coffee table. And every morning there would be six or eight people sitting around that phone with the, with the loudspeaker talking about market conditions, what was going on, what we needed to be doing. And there was a certain emergency feeling, obviously, to what was happening every day. But the days were very full, and it was a mixture of having to deal with unanticipated events and, and things we had to respond to quickly. At the same time, there were testimonies and speeches and visiting dignitaries and meetings with the staff. So it was trying to squeeze all of these unusual events and responses into what was ordinarily a much more straightforward kind of schedule. Well, he talks rather modestly, but I can remember living through three key weeks in October 2008 when I thought that the uh, situation where the world's financial system could come to a shuddering halt was was really quite real. Uh, Most of the work on the rescue plan seemed to occur at weekends when the markets were closed and uh, unable to panic still further. But how did it actually feel from inside? By focusing so much on each individual task, you try not to be thinking all the time about the consequences for the world of these decisions, and that that seemed to help somewhat. I remember feeling that people who watched the crisis unfold on television felt it was much more dramatic in a way than than we did, dealing with it minute by minute, hour by hour. It became a long process in which no one minute was more dramatic than others. It was people who watched it on television where the highlight of the day was crystallised into one minute, saw, saw it as more dramatic. And, and for us, it was much more uh, the, the unfolding of a sequence of events that just went on and on and on, and coping that wasn't straightforward. 
The other thing we've seen with the Fed is a big change in terms of transparency, uh, with the Fed now providing a lot more forward guidance uh, and talking about uh, considerable time and patience and using words like that. Um, Bernanke was very much the kind of person who brought that transparency in, in a situation where there was very little transparency before. Why was that? You also made a big effort to improve the transparency of what you were doing to the ordinary American. You spoke a lot to the ordinary American. How did you do that and why did you do that? Well, when I came to the Fed, even before I became chairman, I was part of the Board of Governors, I thought that being more transparent, more open about monetary policy and our other policies was very, very important. Uh, Central banks for many, many years had been quite opaque Montague Norman, the longtime governor of the Bank of England, supposedly said, uh, never apologize, never explain, or something similar uh, about his strategy for making policy. So I thought it was very important for democratic accountability and for making policy more effective. But then when the crisis came, there was a whole new level of need to communicate. First, because we were doing all these complex and, and sometimes scary things to try to address the problem, and it was very, very important that we explain to the public you know, why we were doing it and what our goals were, in particular why stabilizing the financial system was so important not just for the financial system itself but for the whole economy, and that was something we needed to explain. And then in a situation like the crisis of 08, uh, there's so much uncertainty and fear out there, which is in fact is a negative for the economy because people retrench and they won't spend and they won't invest. So trying to explain, you know, what what's happening and what, what – what people are doing about it, I think uh, if it, to the extent that it adds to confidence and understanding among the broader public, that's only good for the economy. Well, it was also important to explain to the public at large quite uh, what was happening, why they were bailing out the bankers. Plenty of evidence that when the financial system collapses, the rest of the economy collapses as well. And I think that by stabilizing the financial system, we avoided much, much worse, persistently bad consequences for our economies. But as you say, it takes a lot of explaining for people to understand why you're doing what you're doing and why, even though things are not at all satisfactory, why they could have been much worse. Now, both he and Mervyn King were both academics. Uh, did this academic experience help? It was certainly incredibly stimulating and incredibly challenging. And the chance to use what you've learned is, is a very satisfying experience. I mean, Keynes famously said that economists ought to strive to be as useful as dentists. What's the point of economics if you don't use it to make the world better? And I, I feel that the work I did as an academic, you know, paid off and that I was able to use that to help solve these problems. And that's, that's very satisfying, even though it's not an experience that I would voluntarily uh, repeat. Well, Andrew, that's quite an interesting uh interview, I think, of exactly what happens uh, on the inside in terms of policy. But how do you think recent history is now looking at Bernanke and Mervyn King as how they handle things? Well, I, mean, I think it's always easier with hindsight to see what, what could have been done differently. But at the time, as they, as they were explaining, yeah, these were completely new situations. And and to an extent, they were academics, and they, you know, approached it in a, in an academic way, uh, but also trying to get as much feedback from the markets and reaction to the markets as was possible. Um, you know, could they have done it better? Probably, um, but 
in the circumstances. I think, you know, the fact that the financial system didn't totally collapse and the fact that the markets continue on probably shows that they did, didn't do a bad job. Yes, uh, I've got a friend who vehemently disagrees. He says they shouldn't have academics uh, doing making policy. Uh, they should actually have bankers because bankers actually have the touch and feel of the markets at their fingertips. And, of course, on the other side, we had Hank Paulson, the Secretary of the Treasury, who was a banker. Yes, but I think also then you get, you know, personal grievances and grudges and, you know, favouritism coming through, uh, and that's the other problem. I think one of the advantages of certainly the UK system where you almost have civil servants running these things is the fact that they are, you know, apolitical and uh, hopefully have very little favouritism between one and another. But uh, it's a very difficult situation. You do want that market experience, uh, as you say, the feel and the touch of it, but at the same time you don't want the, the biasness that automatically comes with it. Now let's bring in Michael Every, who's Head of Research uh, for Asia for Rabobank. Good morning, Michael. Morning. Uh, what's your thoughts on that Bernanke interview? Um, I'm actually surprised uh, that there's no real mere culpa from Bernanke in that. I think he's actually... Surprised? Got, uh, well, he's got something of a cheek, I think, to be trying to take the plaudits for having saved the global financial system and appearing modest when... Effectively, he's somebody who filled the house with barrels of kerosene and encouraged everyone to be throwing around matches uh, and then tries to take the credits for having called the fire brigade when the whole thing was burning down and subsequently has rebuilt the house in exactly the same manner, once again filling it with kerosene and once again handing out boxes of matches. So I think it's a little bit ironic. Yes, he'd probably say that uh, Alan Greenspan filled it with kerosene. Um, and there are two stages too. You have the stage at which there were decisions that had to be made and a lot of political uh, horse trading that had to be done. And then the period after, which most people I think will remember him for, which is for QE and pumping a lot of liquidity into the economy. Uh, absolutely true that Greenspan blazed the trail, but I think Mr Bernanke very happily continued down that path. And uh, Janet Yellen is doing exactly the same thing. I, I don't feel there's been any change, really, in terms of the overall policy thrust from the Federal Reserve uh, in that respect. It may be more transparent, but the only thing that is really transparent is just how much their policy is to fill the house with barrels of kerosene and hand out matches. So you're not looking at interest rates going up anytime soon? Well, I think they're huffing and puffing. I'm not quite sure whether they're prepared to try and blow the housing and equity bubbles down. Um, we shall see. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they uh, do edge up interest rates slightly, but I think when we look at what they're forecasting for the end 2016, 2017 timeline, where they're talking about interest rates getting back up to around 2.75%, 3%, I think that's pure fantasy, to be honest. Mm. And what are you looking at for 2015 then? Where, where are you telling your clients uh, where they should put their money? Uh, well, in, in terms of an overall global portfolio, I think the important thing to remember is, uh, as Andrew was saying earlier, I think there are going to be opportunities, but there's going to be a lot of volatility. And the primary thing that I'm warning people about at the moment is I think the main channel that we'll see that volatility being expressed through is exchange rates. Because central banks, uh, as I was trying to allude to a moment ago, are doing everything they can to keep pushing up equity prices. They don't want to see housing markets collapse either. Uh, and so increasingly, the only kind of... Uh, avenue that we can get that volatility expressed openly through that central banks don't really control yet is the currency markets. So well, I think it's going to be a wild ride there. It's quite interesting that currency markets, uh, correction, stock markets around the world, if you look at 2014, very often gains in the local market have been eroded by losses on the currency. 
Absolutely. And I think that really underlines the point that you can look like you're controlling the market, but actually you're not. And I think Japan is the perfect example of that. There we have a central bank that is ostensibly saving the day. But if you look the Nikkei's up extensively in yen terms, mm. and you look at it in dollar terms, and you can see it's gone nowhere at all. And I think that's the pattern that's going to be replicated in many other places. Andrew? I think Michael makes a very good point. I mean, raising interest rates, historically, you know, 2.5% doesn't sound very much. But it's a huge increase on where interest rates are at the moment, and it's a, going to be a big cost not only for companies but also for consumers at the end of the day. So, Michael, what's your favourite in Asia then, looking for 2015? Where, where are you focusing? Well, I think you have to be looking at markets really that have good long-run uh, fundamentals. That's obviously important. Don't have an external debt problem or don't face too many issues uh, if we see a backdrop of a rising dollar. Uh, and we have to you know, be quite selective in, on that front. The ones that really stand out to me, uh, number one is still India. I know that uh, obviously they've had a big rally there, but I think India's fundamentals are getting better and better. And it's so encouraging to actually see a government that is recognising that structural reforms are needed and is actually pushing ahead with them. That's actually quite rare, and you don't see much of it nowadays. Well, uh, one may say structural reform in India were, were not all often said in the same sentence. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> it's quite a pleasure to be able to do so. <laughs> uh, what about the little Southeast Asian markets? You know, they seem to have really had their been tied to the coattails of China, not for any particular reason, but China's been a very weak market until, of course, the last uh, two to three months. Um, but the ASEAN markets, I'm talking the smaller ones, Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand, Taiwan, Korea's been a very bad performer. What are you looking at those markets at the moment? Well, obviously, those tend to get swept along in, in broader macro themes or global trends. Uh, but if we drill down just a little, Indonesia, I think, is a slightly less positive version of what's happening in India. We can be moderately optimistic there, but not massively optimistic. Um, Thailand, I think the political situation there is still extremely complicated, shall we say. And I think that will continue to uh, dampen enthusiasm there in 2015. OK, well, uh, Michael, I hope you can stay in the studio uh, while we talk to William. We've got William Ma of uh, Gotex Penjing after this. <laughs> Uh, right, William. Uh, William Ma, who is the uh, Chief Investment Officer of Gotix Penjing. Good morning, William. Morning. Um, William, you are involved in the fund of funds uh, investment management industry, so quite different from the other gentlemen. So you're going to be looking at the world from quite a different point of view in terms of looking at investment funds uh, and buying investment funds in order to put into a portfolio. Um, the one thing that's coming out this year, certainly towards the end of the year, seems to be the fact that um, that actually active managers have not performed very well, that they've actually lagged their benchmark. Is this something you're noticing? Um, it depends on strategy. And again, our focus is Asia. And there are different strategies that has actually doing quite well this year. For example, Asia macro managers, they have been profiting from the yen weakening trade as well as um, in middle of the year, remember appreciation, they pocket like mid-teens of returns. And then the second area is like a relative value manager. They make also mid-teens of return from the A-share and X-share arbitrage trade in middle of the year. <clears throat> and lastly, um, on the market neutral manager, some Japan market neutral manager has been up 
uh, high single digit despite the the uh, topics has been flat this year. So let, let's uh, unpack that for the listeners. You're talking about global macro. These are people who look at big moves in the world and, and make their bets on things like currencies and uh, markets. Uh, then you talk about market neutral, which are people who it doesn't matter whether the market goes up and down. Exactly. And they do long and short uh, of different companies. For example, they can long Toyota and short Mercedes or Honda. So basically, there is a little correlation with the uh, overall broad market. It's more stock specifics. But there's also been a lot of talk uh, looking at year-end figures that the hedge fund industry has not performed particularly well this year. I would say globally, the hedge fund industry has been uh, lagging behind the S&P uh, <clears throat> 500 and global market. But for Asia, for example, MSCI index has been flat and slightly down this year. But the Eureka hedge, uh, hedge fund index has been up mid-single digit. So hedge fund has been performing above the market this year, actually. Uh, above their benchmarks? Yes. Or, uh, um, for, uh, and that's for Asia. Index. For Asia. And when you look at the markets, do you look at um, uh, presumably different kinds of funds are going to do differently in different kinds of markets? So particular fund in the US, of course, you probably would have wanted to be in a long-only fund, which is where people buy and they don't short, short stock. Uh, but in other markets, what you're saying is that actually it's been better to buy some stocks and sell some stocks at the same time to give yourself more of a balance. Yes, and uh, we are seeing also some country-specific strategy. For example, in Korea, we are start seeing some new launches of uh, uh, event-driven funds. They are trying to do corporate restructuring. For example, in Korea, they have some new reform trying to narrow um, the mother, com- mother holding companies' uh, discount versus the underlyings. And the government is pushing the unwinding of cross-shareholdings. So there are new specific strategy funds regionally being launched in different countries. So do you take a, a country view at all? I mean, for instance, 2015, going back to the question I asked Michael a few minutes ago, are there any particular countries or regions, areas, especially within Asia, that you're looking at? We do. Um, um, I think um, India, as Michael mentioned, has been a performing market and the reform story is interesting. Um, although there are more and more global allocators start looking at this country, um, given the, the strong rally on the equity market, I would like to point out uh, Korea would be an, an, another interesting market in 2015 because um, a lot of people are focusing on Japan thanks to the weakening yen. And people are looking at Korea uh, as a victim. However, from a domestic perspective, the government is start to pushing some reforms. Uh, besides the cross-shareholding unwinding, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the government is trying to encourage the company to pay higher dividend and trying to reduce their cash reserve in, in, in their companies, as well as they are trying to activate um, the property market as well. All these things are, are all good for the domestic economy, but are currently not being focused by the global allocators. Michael, what, what do you think about Korea? It's been a terrible market this year. Well, I think uh, Korea really is looking over its shoulder permanently at what's going on in Japan. Uh, and if you look at the correlation between dollar-yen and dollar-korea, uh, you get some idea that really something is going to have to happen on that front. Uh, you know, one would suggest, actually, that, yes, would be positive for the equity market if they push down uh, the value of the, uh, of the won uh, by intervening in the same way that the Jap- Japanese have done, uh, because that will obviously push up the value of uh, exporters' earnings. There's, so, be- there's been a lot of sentiment, though, in Korea, hasn't there, as a result of uh, weakness of the Japanese yen, competition from there. Uh, are we saying that maybe the sentiment now, negative sentiment is too strong, that really there are fundamentals there that people could look at? 
Well, I mean, Korea definitely has some strengths, but when you've got one of your biggest export rivals next door moving from 85 to 120 versus the dollar in just two years, it's very, very hard to stay ahead of that. Mm, painful. Andrew, do you look at these markets at all? Yes, and I think, I mean, I think one of the other things we have to bear in mind is the fact that although President uh, Prime Minister Abe did win that snap election, he didn't really increase his mandate. He has the same problems he had before. Uh, and we're seeing falling popularity because just as we've seen in, the, in America, the man in the street, the, you know, the, the normal Japanese person isn't seeing any of the benefits yet. Uh, the companies are, but he can't persuade the companies to pay higher wages. He can't stimulate more demand. Uh, he's being you know, rather undermined by foiling oil prices. So the situation for Japan, certainly as we go into the beginning of the year, is going to be as precipitous as it was before uh, he started this. And, and obviously the difference is, though, that the wider macro situation is probably slightly worse because you've got more countries thinking about using uh, FX as a tool to their own economic growth uh, than there was this time last year. So the papers are going to be full of uh, headlines calling on currency wars. Well, it, it's certainly in the wings there, certainly. I mean, I, I think a lot of central banks have been very restrained so far, uh, and this goes back to the, you know, the basis of the financial crisis when all the central banks work together. But as we have come over that, you know, that hurdle, then each country has started looking to its own best interests again. Right, uh, and uh, just before we go, uh, last question. So, William, what's your what's your key pick for this year? Is it something you're really putting a lot of money into? Uh, I would say Korea, domestic stories, uh, not the export-driven sector. And there you can only invest in long-only funds, or are there some funds that do some sort of hedging? Mostly long-only, and we are seeing the domestic market uh, hedge fund uh, being developed, but they, they haven't launched the Cayman, the offshore version yet, so <clears throat> long-only biased. And, Michael, your, your top pick for the year? Uh, I know that's very unfair, <laughs> but well, I think, so I'm asking you. I think most equity markets are going to go up because of central bank action. I think it will be a good year for equities, but watch out what that actually means in real terms when you adjust for the exchange rate. Yes, and Andrew? Well, you know, I'm here in Hong Kong, so I'm going to favour the Hong Kong-China story, uh, just because I think it still comes down to, you know, it, keep investing in markets that you know well. Mm. Well, thank you very much. That's uh, William Ma, who's Chief Investment Officer of Gotex Penjing, and uh, Michael Every of uh, Rubberbank. Thank you both for coming in in between uh, Christmas and New Year, and I wish you both a, a very happy New Year. Um, just a, a quick last uh, thought from uh, Andrew. Uh, what do you think about that last discussion? Are you slightly more optimistic than you were before? Well, we're not I... saying the markets have strong fundamentals, but are they going to go up? Well, I think, I think markets will continue. Long-term trend is, yes, that markets go up. I think this year, again, you've got uh, expectation that for once the US bond market is going to have a bad year and that's going to see a rotation. But we've been looking for a big rotation out of bonds and into equities for the last two years. So let's make <laughs> it three years. Why not? Good. Thank you, Andrew. That's our regular guest host, uh, Andrew Sullivan. And just the opening markets, just before we go, they're uh, uh, sluggish and not very happy this morning. Australia is down a third at uh, 5,430. Uh, Nikkei is also down a third at 17,665. And Seoul, uh, following type, is down 0.2 uh, at uh, 1,924. Well, thank you very much for joining uh, Money for Nothing. It's uh, been a pleasure and delight to have you today and um, hope you'll hear us tomorrow. Uh, just before we go, we'll have the weather. Uh, today will be fine. 
It'll be cold in the morning, dry during the day with a maximum temperature of around 18 degrees. Light to moderate northeasterly winds. The temperature is currently 13 degrees and the relative humidity is 81%. And now we have the news, read by Todd Harding. Staff at ATV will finally receive some of their November wages today, but the future of the insolvent broadcaster remains far from secure. Its management have promised to pay half the owed salaries later today and the other half next month. However, an editor from the station's news department said the arrangement has failed to convince colleagues about the broadcaster's long-term ability. Staff had threatened to walk out if they weren't paid by January the 1st. The Labour Secretary, Matthew Chung, said today's payment doesn't resolve anything. This is still not good enough. They have to fulfill the obligation entirely and pay all the outstanding wages. Now, we are seeking the advice of the Department of Justice, and if there is sufficient evidence, we will certainly institute prosecution without further ado. The U.S. has confirmed that Indonesia has asked for its help in finding the AirAsia jet which disappeared over the Java Sea on Sunday. The Airbus A320 disappeared with 162 people on board during a flight from Surabaya to Singapore. The BBC's Clive Myrie is at Surabaya International Airport. Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia and Australia are involved in the search for the plane and now China says it's ready to offer assistance too. There was initial optimism that something might be found soon and the search area would remain fairly narrow, confined to the original flight path. That's because the exact position of the plane was known when it lost contact with air traffic control. But so far, there's been no trace. The search will resume at first light on Tuesday as hope fades for the families and friends of those on board that anyone will be found alive. Taiwan has given the official go-ahead for building a fleet of its own submarines after years spent waiting in vain for U.S. models. Deputy Defence Minister Chu Jo Cheng told Parliament the ministry has approved guidelines for the design 